0: Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each Thursday, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. Enjoy
1: the show!
2: For NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio, I'm Hannah Servadio. So on Tuesday of this week, we had the third committee hearing in the Senate for SB 23, also known as the six-week abortion ban or the heartbeat bill. Um, This is the Health and Human Services and Medicaid Committee, of which Burke is the chair and uh, Senator Nikki Antonio is the ranking minority member. So we had supporter testimony from a range of different types of people and occupations and we're going to play some clips of those testimonies. First up we have NARAL's very own Kelly Copeland, uh, our executive director who has been in her role for about 16 years. For being here so long she's seen several general assemblies pass and uh, proposed this legislation over and over again so she speaks to that in her testimony.
3: My name is Kelly Copeland and I'm the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio, I am here to testify on behalf of our more than 50,000 members and activists against SB 23. This is the fifth general assembly that has considered passing a six-week abortion ban. Over the last eight years, thousands of people have spoken out against this legislation. Some discuss the reasons why this bill is unconstitutional. Others spoke about the ways in which this legislation poses serious dangers to women's health. Others have talked about how the legislation would impact the victims of rape or incest as they are compelled by their government to give birth to their rapist child. Two months ago, before this very committee, person after person, some who are here again today, stepped forward and shared their personal experiences. Their stories ranged from a young victim of human trafficking to a graduate student facing an unintended pregnancy to a woman facing the heartbreaking news that her wanted pregnancy had gone terribly wrong. Each woman made the decision to terminate her pregnancy because it was the best decision for them based on their unique life experiences. As I prepared to come before you for perhaps the last time before this, committee beca- before this bill becomes law, my thoughts turned to each of you and what it would mean for you to have to live with the consequences of effectively outlawing abortion in Ohio. You see, until this past fall, when President Trump's nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, hearings about this legislation were largely just an exercise in the hypothetical. Until that time, everyone assumed that if Ohio enacted this virtual ban on abortion, that the U.S. Supreme Court would strike it down as being unconstitutional. Now that there appears to be a five to four conservative majority on the court, it is entirely possible that after a lengthy and costly legal battle that this newly configured US Supreme Court could uphold this legislation and use it to overturn and gut Roe versus Wade, the 1973 court case that legalized abortion across the United States. If you enact this ban and the US Supreme Court upholds it, that will mark a seismic shift in American history. Abortion will be effectively outlawed in Ohio and likely in many of our neighboring states. Abortion may remain legal in some states, but they may not be able to handle the influx of patients to their states. Even though we talk about this as a six-week abortion ban, it would likely result in all of the abortion clinics in Ohio being forced to close, and it would be nearly impossible for anyone to legally obtain abortion care in Ohio, even those individuals who are facing medical complications during their pregnancy. Few hospitals or doctors, if any, will risk felony charges to end a patient's pregnancy, even in the most dire medical circumstances. People of means will flee Ohio's borders, as is already happening due to the bans on abortion later in pregnancy, and those without the means to escape will endure fruitless and sometimes dangerous pregnancies against their will. They'll be confined to their homes or face the innocent but painful questions about when are you due, Is it a boy or a girl? Over time, many of the best and brightest of obstetricians and gynecologists will leave Ohio and our surrounding states that also outlaw abortion. Or they'll refuse to move here in the first place. They won't want to practice medicine with county prosecutors looking over their shoulders, poised to slap handcuffs on them and haul them into court for providing their patients with a standard of care during a medically complex pregnancy. Ohio's shortage of OBGYNs will worsen and it will become increasingly difficult to find doctors to provide critical care in our rural communities while wait times for appointments will grow, possibly allowing undiagnosed cancer to spread past the point of effective treatment. Efforts to curb the increasing incidence of scheduled C-sections will be reversed because doctors will try to accommodate as many patients as they can from Ohio's rural communities. There is little doubt that the massive disruption in pregnancy care will irrevocably harm the doctor-patient relationship and make it more difficult to fight Ohio's intolerably high rates of maternal and infant mortality, which disproportionately impact communities of color. In states like Ohio who choose to outlaw abortion, women will not simply surrender their bodily autonomy and stop having abortions. That has never happened, not at any time in history, not anywhere around the globe. When women search, they will search out medications or herbal combinations to end their pregnancies. According to Michelle Oberman, a law professor at Santa Clara University, and I'm going to quote her pretty extensively and then my comments will mainly be done. When abortion is a crime, the emergency room can become the scene of a criminal investigation and doctors the detectives. If a woman takes the wrong drug or the wrong dosage, particularly too late in pregnancy, she's likely to wind up in the emergency room bleeding. There is no ready way for doctors to tell the difference between the hemorrhaging from a natural miscarriage and that from an induced abortion. But this hasn't stopped governments charging poor minority women with crimes arising from miscarriages, stillbirths, or perceived risks taken while pregnant. Knowing all of us that banning abortion will not make it go away, and that without doctors to charge, law enforcement will wind up targeting the poorest, most marginalized women. Our battle over legalized abortion seems misguided. The rise of abortion drugs simply throws into sharp relief that what we have always known, abortion rates are driven not by legality, but by economics. Half of the abortions in the US take place among women below the federal poverty line. People of good faith on both sides of the abortion war know that the best way to lower abortion rates is to deal with what causes women to want to abort in the first place. Rather than ending abortion, criminalizing abortion will merely create new ways in which the state can intensify the misery of the poorest among us. So as you reflect on the impact you will have on your constituents in the state of Ohio, I'm asking you to think about what you want your legacy to be Do you want your legacy to be that you punished women and outlawed abortion, making Ohio a place where the poor are punished and the rich leave to get the medical care they need? Or would you rather enact policies that promote the well-being of Ohio's women and their families, like paid family leave, pay equity, and quality affordable childcare? What is all this really about? If your goal is to punish medical professionals and women, you should pass this bill. If your goal is to reduce the number of abortions in Ohio, there are better ways to do that, such as enacting the paid family leave, pay equity, access to contraceptives, comprehensive medically accurate sex education in our schools. Those are the best ways to provide a healthy Ohio.
2: You'll hear testimony now from Jessica Roach, CEO of Restoring Our Own Through Transformation, also known as Root, an incredible woman of color led organization based in Columbus that focuses on reproductive justice and black maternal health care.
4: Good afternoon, Chairperson Burke, Vice Chair Huffman, and members of the Health, Human Services, and Medicaid Committee. My name is Jessica Roach, and I am the Chief Executive Officer of Restoring Our Own Through Transformation also known as ROOT. Our organization is a black woman-led reproductive and birthing justice organization dedicated to addressing black maternal and the infant health crisis through direct service, policy, advocacy and education that centers the voices and needs of black families. What is unique about our organization is that our values, drive our full-spectrum approach toward reproductive health care, specifically as it pertains to black families and our our lived experiences. Root also places a heavy emphasis on addressing the institutional and structural policies and deficit-driven health communications that have caused the adverse consequences revealed through recent analysis of the social determinants of health. Reproductive justice is often co-opted and siloed into a narrow frame of just the pro-abortion lens. That is a misrepresentation. At root, our tenets are clear. We believe in the right to autonomy, the right to choose how, where, when, and if. We create a family, the right to define our families for ourselves, and the basic human right to environments, social structures, and institutions that foster safety and self-sustainability within our communities. As a black woman with clinical experience as a nurse, and as a public health expert in family planning, maternal and infant health, as a perinatal support provider of doula services, and as a mother, I stand here in front of you today in opposition to SB 23 with two distinct points for consideration. First, public policy and or legislation based on non-accurate medical information is dangerous and does not allow for informed decision-making by the patient, which is a direct violation of patient rights. While, legisla- while any legislation created that tries to dictate access to reproductive health care is a violation of patient rights. To create a bill that in and of itself prevents access to abortion after detection of the first heartbeat, which is actually a, a cardiac flutter, is misleading, coercive, and not based in true physiological embryonic development. To be more direct, there's no science applied to the aforementioned point of access restriction, which means this legislation would be responsible for communicating information that is inaccurate to its constituents. Moreover, regardless of moral arguments or values that each individual holds, it is necessary that health communication be accurate and unbiased, and that it's evidence-based in scientific fact as it pertains to human growth and development. Secondly, Root's position is as an institutional advocate for black families requires that we support our medical colleagues and legislative bodies with increasing their understanding of what reproductive justice means. Understanding reproductive justice in black communities means understanding and acknowledging our 400 year history of not only having our reproductive choices raped away, but also having those choices dictated to us By white male dominated legislative bodies and their business equity stakeholder partners historically and even now in 2019. It was clear then and now that they did not and in many ways still do not consider us human. This systemically racist and oppressive approach is embedded throughout health communication, access to birth control and other forms of reproductive health care access to opportunity, safety, and sustainability. SB 23 is based upon an idea that plagues us of African descent, and in particular those with a heritage in America that begins with enslavement, that the idea that a privileged few have the right to ownership over our bodies, our children, and our decisions to do what is necessary to create the family we desire to have. This bill is not pro-life. It is loosely pro-birth, but absence the sense of, of birthing justice. It does not consider many variables impacting our decisions in order to sustain or empower our lives. It does not speak to the already existing black lives that are here and many, and may have a need for this resource. It does not care about the health and well-being of mothers and fathers. It merely allows for the opportunity to continue the civic disruption of the black family unit by putting one of the most important family decisions at risk because it does not allow for consideration of the other factors. Reproductive decision made within the black family should stay within the black family. These decisions are private and personal health care matters that require all of the variables to be considered. Um, and that those that with socioeconomic privilege cannot understand. These types of decisions should be made in conjunction with a competent medical practitioner of each individual's choosing with with the ultimate decision being made by the family. Our families and communities have been disrupted and destroyed by policy created over a 400 year timeline with absolutely no regard for our sanctity and it must stop. This bill stands to disproportionately and politically commoditize and criminalize black black bodies further. Root respectfully demands that our voices be heard and centered in our care and that all of you cast a no vote against SB23.
2: Next up we have Tiffany Stainfield, also a medical student. Uh, She came to testify as a representative of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Ohio. I won't ruin the surprise, but her testimony was pretty incredible, and you can tell based on the applause that breaks out when she finishes that everyone uh, thought the same, including the committee. Chairman Burke made it a point to admonish the clapping, but still point out that her testimony was particularly impressive.
5: Ready? all right uh, Chairman Burke Vice Chair Hoffman ranking member Antonio uh, and all the members of the committee thank you for allowing me to speak on uh, on Senate bill 23 the dangerous six-week abortion ban. My name is Tiffany Stainfield also a graduating medical student um, at a different university I think um, and I hope to match here in Columbus come June. Uh, notably I've lived in Ohio my entire life and unfortunately she, uh, she stepped out but I am in Senator Gavron's district um, as is my entire large family. Um, I'd like to share with you my testimony. I come here to you today to oppose the worn out abortion ban seeking you've all previously decided your voting See, it's no surprise to anyone here, giving their energy and time, that we feel we're not heard. It's not worth a dime. But I know that's not true. Coming out here in force, without our voices, this bill would smoothly run course, so please listen along as I profess what I need before you go out there and do your voting deed. Despite all of us here fighting to get your minds to sway, you're predictable and are going to pass this bill anyway. To start, I'd like to say there's a whole profession of expert physicians, those medical scientists and long-trained clinicians that blatantly outline why banning abortion is dangerous under these really unreasonable heart-weak conditions, so a copy of the policy attached for you exists. I quote the American College of OBs and Gynecologists, ACOG opposes unnecessary regulations that limit access to care. The intervention of legislative bodies into medical decision-making is inappropriate, ill-advised, and dangerous. Despite doctors like your own leaving no area of gray, you're predictable and are going to pass this bill anyway. Further, the Supreme Court of this mighty great land has already made it clear on abortion way beforehand. The 16 decision on House Bill to in it this quoted attribution. Pra- placing a substantial obstacle on the path of women seeking an abortion violates the federal constitution. But here we go again and again, round and around, wasting your constituents' tax dollars on nothing profound. If the goal is to make it to the court stop with this bill, there will be people like me and us fighting this still. Despite the federal level families' legal freedoms you betray, you're predictable and are going to pass this bill anyway. Let's mention the thousands of priests that have come to state naming the nuns, children, and women they've made procreate. This is not a religious issue. Pregnancy can happen to us all. Fun fact, the majority of women getting abortions under Christianity, they fall. With this bill, it doesn't matter the holy God that you trust. Following separation of church and state, you definitely must. It's not the God that I know that leaves women with such burden. Isn't his love and kindness, aren't we all here forgiven? Despite the proponents, the church has nothing legal to say you're predictable and are going to pass this bill anyway. Pay no mind to the hundreds of thousands of men that will be affected to fines, payments, and even incarceration subjected because the women they impregnate are forced to birth now will actually need help, but the government says find it elsewhere somehow. Most disturbing of all the victims of incest, domestic violence, trafficking, and rape will be forced to live out their terrors and fears without escape. Imagine your beautiful innocent 15-year-old daughter or grandkid getting forcefully knocked up and not having the option I did, despite one in four women getting abortions, and behind is a man, if you may, you're predictable, are going to pass this bill anyway. Back to the part about the decision and choice I had. I was young and in college, and my ex-boyfriend didn't want to be dad, so he came to my house uninvited with 500 in cash, telling me you better fix this, leaving me alone out like trash. We had earlier broken up, but about five weeks after, the career plans for my life had met the incinerator, but because of Planned Parenthood and Cincy on Auburn Avenue, a doctor and advocate and a proud woman stands before you. Despite the backbones of people like us and all the truth we convey, you're predictable and are going to pass this bill anyway. After all of that, let's talk about what this bill's really about, decoupling the act of sex from procreation, no doubt for the Trumps, USA can't even handle the idea of birth control because it lets women actually enjoy sex without paying the toll. You know, abortion is a product of reckless ejaculation. A doctor once told me a result of direct causation. If we made it more affordable, accessible to be protected, sex-educated people to an abortion would not be directed. Despite avoiding the real problem of keeping unwanted pregnancy at bay, you're predictable and are going to pass this bill anyway. Remember our faces and remember our story. We're not here for rejection, but more for the glory to know that people from all over, all other colors, shapes, and sizes demand access to. To abortion and with this, the movement rises. We won't go away into your constituents. We will tell about the vote you make now, on which side you fell. This is not about you or what you do with your voice, it's about uplifting women who need access to choice. Despite all of our pleas, our concerns, and the testimony we pay, will you ever consider a female's control over her body any day?
2: Next up, we have the incredibly well-spoken Parvinay Nori. Uh, She's a medical student and on the board of Med Students for Choice. She speaks to how this bill will have devastating effects on the ability of her and her colleagues to be able to actually practice medicine and do their jobs in the future.
6: Chairman Burke, Vice Chair Huffman, Ranking Member Antonio, and members of the Health, Human Services, and Medicaid Committee. Thank you for allowing me to testify in this committee again today. My name is Parvine Nori, and I am now a fourth year medical student at a public medical school in Ohio where I also recently received my master's of public health. I also serve on the board of directors for the international nonprofit Medical Students for Choice. I am a citizen of this state and a prospective resident physician of this state with interviews starting later this year. As a disclaimer, please note that my testimony here today is reflective of my own convictions and not necessarily those of my institution. I am here today to provide testimony in opposition to to Senate Bill 23 as a prospective resident physician of this state. From the medical perspective, I'd like to highlight how this bill is incredibly harmful and I preface by saying it goes far beyond the ways in which it turns my colleagues, physicians skilled and dedicated to providing reproductive care to Ohioans every day into criminals. The earliest time a fetal heartbeat may be detected is about six weeks, give or take a few days. Interestingly, this coincides with the same time many patients first discover they are even pregnant at all. I can tell you from my own clinical experience, serving in community hospitals, clinics, and serving our nation's bravest at the Air Force Base, that I did not encounter a single person who was able to confirm a positive pregnancy test with an ultrasound before six weeks. By prohibiting abortions after this time, the number of Ohioans that will be forced to leave and seek abortion care in another state will undoubtedly increase. Further from the many Ohioans who are further marginalized by poverty, discrimination, or unsafe domestic situations, the means of securing transportation, childcare for their already existing children, or merely the safety to leave for any period of time at all is just not possible. This bill would make an already extremely difficult situation impossible for many. What I find most troubling about this bill, how this bill is meticulously worded to facilitate harm doing, is how it contains no exceptions for the cases of rape or incest. Unimaginable traumas I certainly hope no one in this room has ever encountered, nor will ever encounter in their lifetime. Having had patient survivors, children as young as seven years old, I can assure you that the lack of due diligence to include such exceptions in an already problematic bill is horrifying. I ask you to think again about who this bill, as it stands, protects. I recently read the response from our lawmakers regarding questions on the lack of such exceptions and their response was, quote, we should not punish the child for the sins of their father, end quote. I ask you now to rethink this statement with the question, which child? This bill does not include room for such cases. Every day, we healthcare professionals of this state battle an increasing maternal mortality rate coupled with an already alarmingly high infant mortality rate. We are tired of watching people die when put into situations that could have been prevented had we been enabled and supported by our government to provide our patients and our citizens with safe, high-quality care. If instituted, this bill will increase the number of Ohioans dying every single year. As for what this means for medical students, Residents and already practicing physicians, we make decisions on where we train, where we practice, and who we serve based on the restrictions placed on our ability to care for patients. For for those of us who want to work together with our government to provide patients with comprehensive reproductive care, this bill quite simply means leaving this state. At present, Ohio is categorized as an extremely hostile state in regards to comprehensive reproductive care. This bill will undoubtedly cost Ohio countless of qualified and compassionate care providers. And further, while this bill would criminalize an abortion provider, only a small subset of practicing physicians, it would directly attack the binding fellowship of all physicians. I've said it before in this very room that our healthcare system, I truly believe our healthcare system and government involvement have the great potential of operating as a mutual partnership, one that facilitates positive patient outcomes and preserves our global leadership in the highest standard of care. As a physician, I want to serve my patients under that standard of care, regardless of which state I practice in. On behalf of the well-being of all Ohioans, I urge you to strongly consider my testimony and vote no on this bill. I urge you to consider the health of our citizens and of Ohio families that rely on you to protect them. Thank you for your time and attention.
2: Kylie Gregg speaks next. She is a resident of Toledo and an advocate for human trafficking survivors, as she is a survivor of human trafficking herself. Her testimony is a deeply personal story she experienced when she was younger.
7: So good morning, uh, Chairman Burke, Vice Chair Huffman, and members of the Health—oh, excuse me—Human Services and Medicaid Community Committee. Thank you for allowing me to testify today. My name is Kylie Gregg, and I am an 18-year-old student and activist living in Toledo. I have resided in Ohio for most all of my life, and I am vehemently opposed to SB 23. Just a few hours from where we stand now, I was a victim of child sex trafficking from ages 10 to 14. I was sold multiple times a day, every day, for a total of over 1,500 times. At age 11, while being trafficked, I became pregnant from rape. Because I was so young, and I grew up in a very rural area with notoriously poor sex education, I didn't really know anything about pregnancy or childbirth. I didn't know what was happening to me. What I knew was that I began to feel symptoms I couldn't explain, nausea, weight gain, pains all over my small body. Another victim of the same trafficking ring was a girl about 13 at the time I was 11. She explained to me that I was likely pregnant. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I didn't know it was possible to be pregnant so young. And I was so used to vaginal bleeding from trauma that I hadn't even realized that I had had my first period yet. The other girl explained to me that she had gone through a pregnancy as well. We figured that I was probably three months along, far past six weeks. She explained to me that I should get rid of it. Neither of us knew the word abortion. She said that if I kept it, something bad would happen, and I knew that she meant that she thought I would die. Yet, she did not force me to do anything. She let me choose because she understood that girls like us rarely got to make any choices, and we cherished every single choice we could make like it was the last one we'd ever have the chance to because we never knew when it would be. I chose to abort. She loaded me with alcohol and drugs and made me take cold showers and beat my stomach until I bled heavily and we knew it was over. Years later, after escaping trafficking, I learned that the girl who helped me had overdosed on heroin and nearly died trying to perform another abortion on herself. We both escaped with our lives, but many girls aren't so lucky. If it were up to the anti-choice authors of SB23, that story really wouldn't have changed. I was past six weeks. At six weeks, I had no access to a doctor to determine if my life was in medical danger or not. I was pregnant from rape, but there is no exception for rape or incest in the six-week ban. They would have condemned me to the same fate that my traffickers did, terrified, captive, victimized, and my only other help, another child who should not have been in that situation either. I have C PTSD from my experiences in sex trafficking. The C stands for complex and is added to a PTSD diagnosis that comes from prolonged and repeated trauma. Prolonged and repeated are words that I could definitely use to describe how it feels to be a woman being antagonized and attacked in a state where bills designed to strip us of our rights and bodily autonomy are constantly being introduced and pushed forward. You, the Ohio State legislator, are supposed to be here to respect, protect, and fight for Ohio citizens. SB 23 betrays that mission. I spent many years of my life having my choices and my rights stolen from me, and now I see my government trying to do the same thing to me once again. I ask you to think of the girls like me who were forced to do awful things to themselves because they could not access safe and legal abortion in their own state. The main idea I hear behind this bill is the supposed protecting of children, but I ask you, was I not a child? Was the girl who overdosed on heroin in an attempt to abort not also a child? This bill would re-victimize and re-traumatize women and girls who have already been through more than what most of you could ever imagine. This bill will result in the death of women and girls. I ask you to consider my testimony and vote no on this dangerous bill, SB 23.
2: The fierce
7: Elena Ramsey speaks next, Um, a loved
2: member of the NARAL team and the executive director of the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. She speaks from a faith background um, on how this bill is moral and other members of religious communities throughout the state feel the same.
1: Chairman Burke, ranking member Antonio and members of the Senate Health, Human Services and Medicaid Committee. My name is Elena Ramsey. And I'm here to testify as a pro-faith, pro-family, and pro-choice Christian. As the executive director of the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, I stand with thousands of Ohioans and Americans in opposing Senate Bill 23. This bill does not reflect the values of the majority of the people in our state and of those in this country, including Protestants, Catholics, Jews, and other religious traditions who support access to safe and legal abortion care. This bill is fundamentally wrong and infringes on both religious and reproductive freedom. It makes no exceptions for rape or incest and denies pregnant people of their free will. It violates bodily autonomy, and it is an affront to rape survivors like myself. No person should be forced to carry a pregnancy against their will, no matter the circumstance. Given that one in three women will experience physical or sexual violence in their lifetime, this bill perpetuates rape culture and violates women's moral agency. Rape survivors, or anyone for that matter, should not be forced to carry a pregnancy to term without their full consent. Make no mistake. This bill is not about life or love. There is nothing life-giving or loving about imposing your will on someone else's body. There is nothing life-giving or loving about obsessively restricting abortion rights while ignoring the real needs of Ohioans. There is nothing life-giving or loving about criminalizing medical doctors and punishing women through this cruel, dangerous, and unconstitutional bill. As a faithfully pro-choice Christian, I choose to advocate for policies and practices that support the well-being of pregnant people and families, such as affordable health care, paid family medical leave, solutions to our staggering infant and mortality rate, comprehensive sex education, birth control, and equal pay. I choose to live out my faith with fear and trembling, seeking to dismantle systems of racial and reproductive oppression which rob immigrants and refugees, LGBTQ folks, people of color, and other marginalized communities of their God-given dignity. I choose to stand with the vast majority of Americans and people of faith and of non-faith who are in favor of keeping abortion safe and legal. I choose love. I choose life. Will you? I urge you to vote against Senate Bill 23. And may you draw upon your faith, conscience,
2: and goodwill to oppose this extreme and immoral bill. Jordan Close, State Coordinator for URGE and former NARAL intern extraordinaire, shares her personal abortion story next.
8: Good afternoon, Chairman Burke, Ranking Member Antonio, and members of the Senate Health Human Services and Medicaid Committee. My name is Jordan Close. I'm the State Coordinator for Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, also known as URGE. I'm a storyteller with Youth Testify, a leadership program of the National Network of Abortion Funds and Advocates for Youth. I serve on the Board of Women Have Options Ohio, an abortion fund, and I have had an abortion. When I was 18, I found out I was pregnant when I was seven or eight weeks along. That means under this bill, I wouldn't have been able to have an abortion at all. My rights would have been stripped from me before I knew I needed them. I knew immediately that choosing to end my pregnancy was the right choice for me. At the time I was living in Logan County, Ohio, I was surrounded by messages telling me that abortion was wrong. There was little to no compassion for any decision to have an abortion, let alone just not wanting to be pregnant. The last time a heartbeat bill was introduced, and in various anti-choice rhetoric, I've heard multiple people compare abortion to slavery in support of this bill and previous heartbeat bans. It is appalling every time. It happens regularly in this debate, and not only is it stigmatizing like the billboards in my community, but it's disrespectful to my ancestors who fought hard to escape the terrors of slavery and forced reproduction, most of the time choosing abortion because they couldn't bear to raise a child in captivity. To compare abortion to slavery is not only ahistorical, but it makes a mockery of all that my ancestors went through. As a black woman, I am dismayed every time that this argument is used to deny me and others access to basic health care. Fortunately, when I needed an abortion, I was able to get one. I found the nearest clinic in Columbus, Founders, a little over an hour away from my home at the time. When I got there, I was completely surprised by the level of compassion and care that the clinic staff provided to me. From the woman at the front desk to the nurses that took care of me afterward, their kindness and support reaffirmed the choice that I already knew was right. The most memorable parts of my experiences were all of the people who were in the waiting room with me. I had never been around people so willing to openly share their stories. I have always been hesitant to tell my story so publicly because to me it seems too pale in comparison to other stories I have heard and the lengths those people have had to go to to receive basic health care. Transportation, raising money, emotional support, time off of work, gestational limits, those were all things that I could handle. I did have to wait wait a few weeks to get an abortion and this bill would have made those weeks impossible and I would have never received the care I needed. When House Bill 493 was introduced in 2016, I went public with my story for the first time on Facebook. It was too important not to. That's why I'm here today testifying in opposition to this bill. Outlawing abortion will not stop people from needing abortion care. It will just make it impossible than it, and so much harder than it already is for people to get access. Ohioans should not have to travel out of state or even out of their city just to get a five-minute medical procedure. The right to that procedure should not be stripped from us before we even know we're pregnant or have a moment to weigh our options. The Ohio State Legislature should be protecting our constitutional rights, not passing laws that undermine them. Every single one of you listening to my testimony loves someone who's had an abortion, even though you may not know it yet. I never wavered in my decision. I never questioned what was right for me. I'm happy with the decision I made. I will never regret it. Abortion is necessary, and abortion is health care. Thank you.
2: Next is Judy Mosley, NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio board member and 30-year veteran of the Ohio Department of Health, where she worked in a variety of different positions, including domestic and sexual violence prevention and on the opioid epidemic throughout the state. Judy traveled throughout Ohio extensively having conversations with many different types of communities and those conversations influenced her testimony on Tuesday.
9: Good afternoon, uh, Chairman Burke, Vice Chairman Hoffman and Ranking Center, Senator um, Antonio. My name is Judy Mosley and I am here as a private citizen and as a member of the Board of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. For more than 30 years, I was a program administrator for women's health and sexual assault and domestic violence prevention at the Ohio Department of Health. After my retirement as a program administrator, I worked in the field of opioid overdose prevention. In that capacity, I worked with Dr. Ted Wimslow, who was then director of the Department of Health, and we uh, worked on the governor's opiate action team, as Senator Burke may recall. I'm here to speak in opposition to um, Ohio Senate Bill 23. During my time working in the above-mentioned positions, I traveled across Ohio and spoke to numerous women and men on a range of health topics, including reproductive health. Based on that experience, it became clear to me that one of the most critical elements affecting the health and economic stability of a woman and her family is the ability to determine when and if to have children. This has also been established by many studies over decades that document the potentially negative effects of childbearing on health and economic status. Thus, for many women, the most responsible and humane decision is is to not have a child that she is not able or prepared to take care of. This country is based on individual freedom and the pursuit of happiness. There is no legal obligation or societal requirement that a woman must bear children and be forced into parenthood against her will, as this bill would do. Those in the so-called pro-life movement assert that a woman must have a child to quote, save the life of the fetus, unquote. But in other circumstances, for example, organ donation, no one is forced into donating an organ even though that would also save a life. Having a child alters a woman's life course and is something that should be a choice so that she's able to enjoy equal citizenship in this country. There are significant economic concerns with being forced to bear a child. A 2014 study by the University of California, San Francisco, that found depending on the circumstances, having a child in a hospital can cost between $3,000 and $37,000 in the United States. Not to mention the cost of raising a child to the age of 18, which according to a 2018 article in USA Today, can cost a middle class family over $233,000, excluding college. There are also significant health concerns. Giving birth can also pose a risk to a woman's health. For example, according to a 2009 National Vital Statistics report in the United States, pregnancy complications are the sixth most common cause of death for women ages 20 through 34. In contrast, according to a 2006 paper in the Lancet, a medical journal, also published in the World Health Organization, abortions when performed by trained professionals are one of the safest procedures in medicine with a death rate of less than 0.01%. The risk of dying while giving birth is roughly 13 times higher. There are also health conditions which make becoming pregnant and giving birth dangerous such as some forms of diabetes and heart disease. There are also significant concerns about the safety of children. According to the National Children's Alliance, an estimated 683,000 children were victims of abuse and neglect in 2015 the most recent year for which we have those statistics. Approximately 3.4 million children received an investigation or received, uh, excuse me, alternative response from children's protective services. 2.3 million children received prevention services and of the children who experienced maltreatment or abuse, three quarters suffered neglect, they suffered physical abuse and sexual abuse. This is what I think is most disturbing and important. A parent of the child victim was the perpetrator and 78.1% of substantiated cases of child maltreatment. Often the neglect and abuse are related to substance abuse and or poverty. This illustrates the stress on families and underscores my point that women need to be able to determine if they are ready mentally and physically and financially to have a child. I would also like to emphasize, as has been stated in previous testimony, that many women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Thus, with a ban at six weeks, they would not even have the opportunity to make the decision as to whether or not to have a child. In an article on WebMD, Michael Kakovich, who's an MD, OBGYN at the Ohio State University uh, Buxner Medical Center stated, and I'm quoting, for some women, the physical tip-offs of pregnancy, like weight gain, morning sickness, heartburn, or fatigue, don't happen, or they're so mild when a woman just doesn't notice them. Depending on her body type, it's reasonable for a woman to make it to 30 weeks without looking pregnant, end quote. I had a personal experience of this many years ago when I had an ectopic pregnancy where an embryo became implanted outside of one of my fallopian tubes, resulting in life-threatening internal bleeding that caused me to pass out. I had no idea I was pregnant, had none of the typical signs. It was only when a nurse in the emergency department asked me, as they were tra- frantically trying to figure out what was going on, if I could be pregnant, that they were able to do tests and address the problem. In conclusion, this bill should actually be called the Forced Parenthood Bill. As the result of a ban on abortion after six weeks as proposed by this bill, when most women don't even realize they are pregnant, is in effect forcing women and their partners or spouses when present into parenthood that very likely will threaten their economic stability and health and, by extension, the stability of their extended families and communities. Thank you.
2: Our chief dad, who also happens to be our communications manager, Gabriel Mann, gives an extremely touching testimony from the perspective of being a father. So touching, in fact, that it had the entire room, including the committee members, looking quite affected. We are very proud to have him on our team.
10: Senator Burke, Mr. Chairman, how are you? Doing good? Okay. Uh, Senator Antonio, thank you for being here. Uh, I've been sitting in the side, in the back of these rooms uh, for all of these hearings. Mr. Chairman, when I say all, I mean since 2011, I'm the only one in this room that's been to all of them. Uh, I've noticed that there's one key group of Ohioans Uh, that are underrepresented in this discussion. It's a group that's also been maligned in consecutive legislative sessions by multiple sponsors of this bill. I'm a dad. Uh, My wife and I have two sons. Uh, They were both preemies. We spent some time in the NICU. Um, You can tell I'm a dad because I'm constantly exhausted. I drive a rusty old minivan uh, and I'm wearing New Balance shoes. (laughs) I've been a soccer coach t-ball coach, a scout den leader, I've wiped butts, I've wiped noses, I've tied shoelaces and I've taught boys how to tie the shoes, I've taught them how to walk and how to ride a bike, I've cleaned up pee, cleaned up puke, cleaned up Play-Doh, I've chaperoned camping trips, taught them how to use a pocket knife, build a Pinewood Derby car, put a worm on a fish hook, I do it, because I want my kids to learn these things, and also because they're kids whose fathers can't take time off to chaperone the camping trip because they're laboring to put a coat on that kid's back and food on their table. My latest endeavor has been a swim team dad. Now you don't normally coach swim team as a parent, you time. Have you ever timed a swim meet, Mr. Chairman? You stand on the side of the pool and you run a stopwatch. It feels just like you did when I worked in a warehouse after high school you're standing for four to six hours on concrete and your legs are just aching. And that kid pops out of the pool and sees their time and they drop three seconds, and the look on their face is amazing. It's not even your kid because he's not swimming for another hour and some other parent's gonna time that lane, but it doesn't matter because we're all standing there on that hard concrete because we love our kids. We sacrifice for our kids. My oldest son needs braces on his teeth now, so there goes the down payment I had saved to replace my rusty old minivan, but that's okay because we sacrifice for our kids. Parenting is hard work. Being a father is a sacred responsibility. The sponsor of this bill, along with the sponsor of the previous version of the bill, was asked why they did not have exceptions for rape or incest added to the bill. Their responses stung. Senator Regner, uh, Representative Hagen, and several of the lobbyists for this abortion ban said we should not punish the child for the sins of the father. Now there's two big problems here. First, you're punishing rape victims by denying them the option of abortion. That point cannot be overstated, but has been made by many, many survivors of sexual assault in committee hearings over the years. The other point has yet to be addressed, so here I am. It's a new point yet to be raised in any hearing on this bill since 2011. You get fresh content. (laughs) When people refer to rape as the sins of the father, you're disrespecting fathers. Nobody else has ever said that and I think it needs to be said. You're devaluing fatherhood and all of the sacrifices and achievements it represents. Being a rapist does not make a man into a father forcefully depositing semen into someone does not make you a dad. That's what this bill would do. That's horrible for women, but it's also a slander on every dad out there on the soccer field, on the T-ball diamond, and holding a stopwatch on the side of the pool. We object. When a woman or girl is raped, the person who committed the offense is a rapist. This committee, should not grant him the honorific of the father of the child. If she becomes pregnant, then it should be her decision on what to do. She has the right and the ability to keep that pregnancy. She has the right and the ability to end it. As fathers, we don't want this committee to elevate rapists into our ranks. That's what this bill would do. Thank you for your time.
2: So I guess I have to awkwardly introduce myself next. I am the Northern Ohio field organizer for NARAL for Choice Ohio. But before I got my job here, I worked in the fields of domestic and sexual violence prevention in Summit County. While there, I taught consent, healthy and unhealthy relationships, bystander intervention, things of that nature to middle and high school students. And that always has a profound impact on how I view this work. Uh, Chairman Burke, Ranking Member Antonio, and members of the Senate Health, Human Services, and Medicaid Committee. My name is Hannah Servadio. I am the Northern Ohio uh, field organizer with NARAL Purchase Ohio. I'm a clinic escort, uh, an educator, and just a concerned Ohioan. And I oppose SB 23, the heartbeat bill. Before working for NARAL, I had the incredibly rewarding opportunity to do work in the domestic and sexual violence prevention field. In fact, it was that work that influenced my decision to work in the field that I do now. I took graveyard shifts and shelters, uh, trained volunteers, sat in hospital rooms with survivors, and taught probably about 5,000 students about consent and healthy and unhealthy relationships in Summit County. It is my experience in the schools that brings me here to testify before you today. I have held in frustration after having a middle school aged girl ask me if she was allowed to say no to her boyfriend who asked her to send him nude pictures. I've heard stories from students that have made my stomach turn. I've also been moved to tears when watching the recognition light up in their eyes the moment it clicks for them, when they realize that they have the freedom to say yes or say no, and to overall advocate for their own bodies. When listening to proponent testimony, during the last session. I heard, someone, I heard someone explain, excuse me, that a woman's body is not hers. Above others, that line made me really ponder the perspective the proponents of this bill are coming from. Not only do I fiercely disagree with the archaic point of view that a woman is simply a vessel, But I implore you to consider the damage that passing legislation based on that ideology can do to the progress being made as it relates to consent culture in our state. How can we tell students that saying no is okay? That no one should have the right to pressure them into decisions that they do not wanna make. That they can do anything with their lives that they choose to do. And then tell them that reproductive healthcare access doesn't fall underneath the category of choice. How can we look survivors in the eye after control has been taken from them and say that we know better about how they heal? I am pro-safe, legal, and accessible abortion care. I am for people having the ability to decide what is best for themselves and move forward with whatever can help them live authentically. I am for Ohio's confident and educated teenagers growing up into being confident and educated adults, knowing their worth and not being afraid to speak up for what they need. I urge you to vote no on Senate Bill 23, a piece of dangerous and unconstitutional legislation with little to no exceptions, as it counteracts so much of what we are teaching to our youth in this state. Thank you. Our last clip of testimony is from Hannah Tyler, an environmental advocate in the state and mother of one, soon to be two. She speaks of her past with an epitopic pregnancy and how nuanced decisions such as pregnancy complications could be affected by unconstitutional legislation such as SB 23.
0: Thank you, Chairman Burke, Vice Chair Huffman, Ranking Member, Antonio, and members of the committee for the opportunity to speak today. My name is Hannah Tyler and I live in Westerville with my husband, one-year-old daughter, and soon to be newborn. I'm extremely proud of my family and consider every day a tremendous blessing. However, my path to motherhood, like many women, was not without heartbreak. In October of 2016, I sat in a doctor's office, sobbing into my hands, trying to stifle my cries from the people walking outside. I had just heard the devastating news that the pregnancy I had prayed for and hoped for for months was not viable. The fetus had implanted in my Fallopian tube, and without treatment, my life and my future fertility would be in jeopardy. I simultaneously mourned the loss of the pregnancy while fearing that at any moment my tube might burst and I would bleed to death. I also wondered if I would ever be able to conceive again. I was only aware at the time of surgical methods for removing an ectopic pregnancy. The drive to the hospital was one of the loneliest moments of my life. Um, My husband was out of town, and I was unable to reach any family members. So I checked myself into the emergency room, and I sat alone waiting for what would come next. After the ectopic pregnancy was confirmed, the attending doctor presented me with treatment options. Despite qualifying for a non-invasive shot that would end the pregnancy, save my fallopian tube and ovary, and prevent any further growth. He advised me to consider surgery instead. His rationale was that the shot would endanger a viable pregnancy and the extremely unlikely event that there was another fetus in my uterus. I was absolutely certain that this was not the case due to blood tests showing very low levels of HCG, uh, which is the hormone present in a woman's blood when she is pregnant. At nearly eight weeks pregnant, my HCG levels would have needed to be at least three times higher than what they were in order for there to be a viable pregnancy. Despite reiterating this fact to the doctor and explaining that I was absolutely opposed to surgery, he refused to administer the shot. Instead, I had to stay overnight in the hospital and consult with my regular OBGYN, who would not be available until the following afternoon. That night was excruciating. I was scared to fall asleep, fearing that my tube would burst and I wouldn't wake up. I also knew that with every passing hour, the potential for further scarring and damage of my fallopian tubes grew, which would make it more difficult for me to conceive again in the future. I don't tell this story because I believe the parameters of Senate Bill 23 would have necessarily prevented me from ending my ectopic pregnancy. I'm sharing my story because it shows that early pregnancy is extremely complicated and can be fraught with difficult decisions. Creating blanket legislation for such a nuanced and complicated facet of healthcare will only strip women and healthcare providers of options. I fear doctors would become so cautious in offering the option to end a pregnancy due to the possibility of criminal prosecution that women will be forced to opt for treatments that are much more invasive and not only threaten their lives, but their overall reproductive health and future paths to motherhood. Additionally, had there been another fetus in my uterus with a heartbeat, would I have been forced to undergo surgery to remove the ectopic? While I likely would have opted for surgery in this circumstance, I do not think it's the legislature's role to dictate what that choice should be. Forcing a woman to undergo invasive surgery and permanent damage to her reproductive system in order to save a pregnancy that may also end up being non-viable, would be a violation of the most basic right of bodily autonomy. My life and future fertility were treated as secondary to the hypothetical presence of an additional viable fetus. I do not want other women to experience what I went through and I believe legislation like this will make my my story far more common than it is now. For these reasons, I oppose Senate Bill 23 and I would urge members of the committee to as well.